is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. It is on page 1224 of the Pew Bibles. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. This is the word of God. Thank you, uh, Barbara, for reading God's word to us this morning, friends. Uh, it's a great opportunity for us to read God's word, to study it, to meditate upon it, and by God's grace, to also live this word. So I hope this text this morning will be an encouraging one for us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that we can have it read and explained. We ask, Lord, that you bless the understanding of this word to our hearts, that we'll be encouraged today, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, friends, this morning I want to get straight into our text today. Um, and the title of this message is Chosen in Christ. Chosen in Christ. We, we all make decisions in life, don't we? We make choices. You go to the supermarket and you want to, I mean, I don't go so much shopping, but when I do go, I buy more things than I should buy. Uh, that's my problem. Uh, and I will take this, that, everything. And I go with my wife Rose and she'll say, oh, we don't need this. Oh, yeah, I need this, this, this. Anyway, everything else. It's like when you go to places like Costco and other places, you fill up your trolley before you know it. And you come out and your money has just gone. <laughs> we make choices. You can, make, you can have wheat bakes, you can have cornflakes, you can have um, whatever choices for breakfast, for example. Or ice creams. I mean, what are the different kinds of ice creams there are? The connoisseur ice cream, the Peter's ice cream, the different flavors, vanilla, chocolate, all of those things. You can have all kinds of choices in life. We make choices for our career pathways in life, don't we? What pathway should I follow? Make a choice, where should I live? Where should I worship? Uh, what car should I buy? Life is filled with choices. And some choices are bigger than others. Major choices. Should I sell up my home and go into a retirement home? That's a hard choice for people. Uh, what do I do with aging parents and the challenges that that brings? Massive choices in life. Life is filled with choices. You see, this morning, well, look at something that God does in terms of His choice in giving salvation to His people. He makes a choice as well, which is only His to make and to call. 
So that's what we're going to look at this morning, chosen in Christ. And last week we began our series on the letter to the Ephesians. We, we looked at some background information about Ephesus and the context within which this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, especially in the light of his ministry at Ephesus. I don't plan to go through all of that material this morning except to recap some points for those who are perhaps visiting with us this morning and just for others as well because I don't expect us to remember last week's sermon. I don't, it's not possible, right? You don't remember what you ate last Sunday, do you? Maybe you do, I don't know. But um, Anyway, therefore, uh, it, it is possible that Paul, um, okay, th- that this letter, though primarily addressed to the Ephesians, could also have been a circular letter intended for the churches of Asia Minor. Therefore, it is possible that Paul intended this letter to go beyond Ephesus and be circulated beyond the confines of the city of Ephesus. And when we refer to the letter of Ephesians, we can refer to it in three ways. One, it is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Two, it is a general epistle, a letter that is sent around perhaps for circulation in the other churches as well. And three, it is one of Paul's prison epistles. He wrote it from prison under house arrest in Rome and we touched on that last week. His readers are described in verse, chapter 1 verse 2 as follows. They are saints, they are faithful, they are in Christ. Here we have a wonderful threefold description of God's people. Saints, change from being sinners to saints. Faithful, God's faithfulness extended to them and they, remain, they live faithful lives. And they are in Christ. Three things, friends. If you are a Christian here this morning, then you are a saint. Agreed? Uh, you might say, oh, I'm very uncomfortable with the thought. Me a saint? No way. Well, God's word tells us that we are. Right? And that's a blessing. It also tells us that God has been faithful to us. We sing, great is your faithfulness. And it challenges us also to be faithful in the gospel. And it tells us that you are also in Christ. The threefold blessings for a Christian. And so this letter speaks of the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Hence, it is a Trinitarian letter where we see the work of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, working in the lives of God's people. Notice, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, the Father calls, Ephesians 1 verse 4, the Son redeems, verse 7, the Holy Spirit seals and confirms the work of salvation, verse 13. So it's a Trinitarian letter in that sense. And last week we looked at our text, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. Now, in our Bible, friends, the sentence ends at verse 3, right? If you look at your scriptures in Ephesians chapter 1. But in the original, Paul doesn't stop there. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14, get this, is one long sentence. It's one long sentence, which has about 228 words. And Paul starts writing about our spiritual blessings in Christ and he cannot find a place to put a full stop. 
<laughs> what, a, what a sentence. Have you ever written a sentence as long as this? <laughs> right. He kept on just writing and writing under the power of the Holy Spirit inspired. And Paul is so taken up by these wonderful spiritual blessings that God has showered upon his people that he just kept on writing one long sentence. And now even though he uses about 228 words or so, it is not disjointed. There is a flow in this passage. And that's what we see here. Our writers in the Bible have put sentences there to help us read it. Lest we run out of breath trying to read so many words as one sentence, right? So they've divided it for, for our help here. But in the original it was not the case. Massive amount of words in one sentence. And in these verses, Paul is going to describe for us many of those spiritual blessings that God has provided for us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these blessings are here. If you keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 1, you would see that. There is election and predestination according to God's purpose and will. Then he moves on to the goal of election, which is adoption as sons, and you can call it as daughters, into the family of God. Then he deals with how this is accomplished, our redemption by Jesus, whom he calls the Beloved. And then the blessings of our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, and then Paul moves on to talk about our inheritance that is ours in Jesus, and finally the sealing of all of this wonderful work of God in the life of a believer by the Holy Spirit. So you can see the flow of this passage. So in this section, I believe, is the story from beginning to end of the work of the amazing and gracious triune God that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the life of every one of his children. Do you see that? If you are a Christian here this morning in Christ, then God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God has done a work in you. What does it do to you this morning? Does it encourage you? Does it, does it move you to rejoice in this wonderful blessing that God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit is involved in your life? What, what an amazing thing that is. <laughs> this God who made the heavens and the earth, who sent his Son into the world through the Holy Spirit is at work in a sinner's life like mine and yours. Doesn't that give you encouragement? <laughs> Doesn't it give you a sense of awe and reverence to this God and excitement in your life that the triune God has taken time to call you in His grace? As we will see in this passage. Here is the history of every Christian. Here we have the biblical basis, I believe, for our comfort our hope, our joy, our confidence, our identity, and our security, both in this life and for eternity. And so this morning we're going to look at just three verses again that describe those blessings. And the next time we'll continue to work our way through this passage. Now just in case someone might ask this morning, and somebody asked me when I sent the, the Bible text for the newsletter, uh, Rose Stephen sent me an email back, I think, are you sure you want to... Repeat the last uh, Ephesians chapter 1, 1 to 10. Are we going to look at that again? I said, of course we're going to look at it again. And we look at it again next week as well. 
Let me explain why. See, just in case you're asking Chris, why are you taking just three verses today as you did last week? Somebody might ask that question. The reason I'm doing so is because, friends, there is so much substance or meat in this section that I don't want us to miss out on the depth of the material that is before us. Alright? That's why I'm doing it. It is packed with teaching. And I don't want us to miss out on the meat of the text. In fact, uh, John Calvin, the great reformer, preached 48 uh, sermons based on Ephesians, which began on the 1st of May, 1558. 48 talks. I mean, that's, that's good. Here's another one. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor. Guess how many sermons he preached on Ephesians? Yes, your call. Anyone? No. More. I'll say you're coming close. No, more, more. Double that. 200. A bit more. 200. It is said that he preached 232 sermons. I mean, I don't know how we did it. Now, friends, I don't plan to do 200 sermons. We'll be here for four years going through the book of Ephesians. Imagine that. You'll be tired by that, right? But the good doctor does that. I mean, that, that's Martin Lloyd's plan. That's how he, he does his preaching. If you look, if you look at his sermons, you listen to his sermons, he just, just, just takes two words and he gives a whole sermon out of that. That's Lloyd Jones' approach. Anyway, for this morning, let me come back to the text. Verses, uh, chapter 1, 4 to 6, where we will focus on just two points. Our election and predestination and our adoption that we have. So please keep uh, your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 1. And we will cross-reference also to, to Romans uh, chapter 9. Now friends, this is an important topic. It's also a difficult one as well. There are different views on the teaching of election or predestination. Alright? There might be different views right here in this church family on this topic as well. And I acknowledge that. There has been much ink spilt on this subject and many words spoken about it as well. And if you want to read more about the topic of predestination election, I encourage you to get the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is, which is the subordinate standard of the Presbyterian Church of Australia. And you can read uh, about God's will, election, predestination, all of that in, in the confession. Read in the light of the declarative statement. But it is there in our confession. So in our text this morning, Paul speaks of election and predestination. Predestination has to do with a person's destiny. For example, when you book a flight to go somewhere, you have a destination in mind, right? If you book a flight to go wherever, you know, hopefully, you get to that destination. So you book your tickets, you know where you're going. Now when we add the word pre to the word destination, it is something that takes place prior to our destination. And when we speak of predestination, here in Ephesians chapter 1, what we see is that predestination takes place not only before we believe in Christ or before we were born, but from all eternity. That is, before the universe was created. Alright? You with me? Okay? Before the foundation of the world. And the agent of predestination is God himself. The, um, the well-known... Okay, let me get back, please. The well-known um, Reformed uh, theologian and preacher, Dr. Asis Proud, Bible teacher and scholar, says this about predestination. In short, 
Predestination refers to God's sovereign plan for human beings, decreed by Him in eternity. Election refers specifically to one aspect of divine predestination, God's choosing of certain individuals to be saved. Therefore, election and predestination, friends, are linked. Now let me explain. When we come to this subject of election and predestination, Christians have debated this point throughout the years. Just let me give you very quickly three views on the subject. Very quick. There are those who say that God graciously offers salvation, but people must choose to receive this gift of salvation by their own free will, and therefore election does not come into equation. You are free to choose or reject. This one view. Another view is that election and predestination are taught in the Bible, but it is based on what they call foreknowledge. That is that God somehow foresaw the faith of those who would choose him, and then he predestined them and redeemed them. So somewhere down the track, God foresaw that Christ, for example, will believe, and so he chose them to predestine and to confirm that plan. The other view is that God elected and predestined to save individuals before eternity by his sovereign choice, for his purpose and out of his will. In this view, God chooses to save people based only upon his grace and nothing else. It is unconditional election. Now, if you, uh, some of you would have studied and the students here, and I know someone else told me at my growth group, I am reading the book chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. So we got some reformed theologians here in our congregation. And if you studied reformed theology, you would know that our five points of Calvinism is total depravity, unconditional election, uh, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. The, the five major points under which all uh, the Reformed uh, theology is based upon as well in terms of this. But unconditional election that God chooses out of his grace and goodness to give that salvation. So obviously this morning we don't have the time to go through all the different views at length and look at debates on the topic of election and predestination. Now. Whatever one views, one's view on election and predestination are, you cannot ignore that election and predestination is a teaching of the Bible. For example, God chose Abraham. Why did he choose Abraham and not someone else? Why? We don't know. But he chose Abraham so to bless him and bring blessings to the nations. God chose Israel from among the nations of the earth to be his precious people. Why didn't he choose the Moabites? Why didn't he choose the Malachites? Why didn't he choose, why didn't he choose some other kites? Whatever. Or ites, or whatever it is. But he chose the Israelites. Why? Well, because they were fantastic people? No, we didn't do that, right? Uh, and, and in Malachi chapter 1, we see that God's choice of Jacob instead of Esau. Again, it was his choice. So, election and predestination cannot be ignored. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to election as a statement and not an argument. And speaking on the subject of election, the well-known theologian John Stott makes the following observation, which is important. It says that, he says this. 
It was not invented by Augustine of Hippo or Calvin of Geneva. On the contrary, it is without question a biblical doctrine, and no biblical Christian can ignore it. According to the Old Testament, God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world to be a special people. According to the New Testament, he is choosing an international community to be his saints. And writing further, he says this, So we must not reject the notion of election as if it were a weird fantasy of men, but rather humbly accept it, and I like this, even though we do not understand it. As a truth which God himself has revealed. You see? John Calvin, the great reformer, as I said, preached, uh, Ephes- preached through Ephesians in his church at St. Peter's in Geneva. In our recent trip uh, to Switzerland, I said to Rose, please, can you somehow include Geneva in our travel itinerary? I said, I want to go to Geneva, not that I knew anything about Geneva, but I wanted to go and see the church that John Calvin preached from. And so we went there to St. Peter's Church, and believe it or not, John Calvin's chair is there on the corner, and uh, there was a rope around it. I tried to get in there and sit, and you can't do it. <laughs> and a massive pulpit that John Calvin preached from, and I had this discussion with this man saying, can I go up the pulpit? And he said, no, you can't. I said, why not? Anyway... You can't get onto the pulpit that Calvin preached from. So anyway, it doesn't matter. But anyway, Calvin, now this is what Calvin says about the election as well. John Calvin. Although we cannot conceive either by argument or reason how God has elected us before the creation of the world, yet we know it by his declaring it to us. The experience itself vouches for it sufficiently when we are enlightened in the faith. We cannot conceive it by argument or reason how God has elected, but it is the experience itself. No wonder Paul says in our text this morning, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Friends, the point is that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world as we read it in our text. God doesn't look at us and pick out the best based on our abilities, looks or otherwise. His choice is not based at all on any of the qualities or lack thereof in our lives. The text is clear, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We are chosen in Christ. That's what we see. We are chosen before the foundation of the world. And Paul goes back in time before creation. He goes back before time began. He goes back into eternity in which only God existed. This is simply amazing. God's choice was not due to his his own... Sorry, God's choice was due to his own free choice and will. And what should our response be to God for electing us in Christ? Well, Paul says, praise God who has richly blessed us. Now, the argument can be made, and I know this argument has been made, that if if this is the case, is God unfair? Is God being fair? Is he unfair then? A good question. I have struggled with this question myself when I started to learn about the doctrine of Election and predestination, I I thought this is crazy. 
This, this is not correct. This is not right. How could God do this? Having reflected and grappled, and I still do, with this question, I've come to try to understand it this way, and I hope it is helpful. Before I say this, friends, I must confess that election and predestination in Christ is a mystery. Anyway, here's how it helped me to unpack the doctrine. See, God's word clearly tells us that we are sinners. Are we agreed? All agreed? No questions about that? Anyone not a sinner here? Well, okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're all agreed. <laughs> the Bible tells us that we have all sinned against God, right? Sin is disobedience against God. The wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. And sin entered the world beginning with Adam and Eve with their disobedience against God. And so the entire human race is a fallen race. We see sin in our lives. We put our TV sets on. We see sin in this world, in our society. We see it all around us. We are all affected by the sickness, the disease called sin. Now nobody in the politically right world will acknowledge that or want to acknowledge it. But the fact is, human beings are fallen. Correct? They're a fallen human race. Our hearts are totally depraved. And the Bible tells us that our sin has separated us from God, who is holy. The Bible tells us that by nature we are enemies of God. Also tells us this, none is righteous. No, not one, Paul says. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We've turned our backs on God. Therefore, God is not obliged to save anyone or to draw anyone to himself. He could have left the whole world to perish in his righteous judgment. Is that correct? He is not obliged to save us. Right? Because we've turned our backs on him. Now if God was to exercise his justice to us, then I am gone and so are you. There is no way that one can escape or stand before God because the Bible tells us is a consuming what is it? Fire. Consuming fire. Therefore we all deserve his wrath. Does God owe us anything? Does he owe you anything? Does he owe me anything? Nothing. I always remember what I have learned. Somebody said to me and I keep this in my mind always. God has treated me better than I deserve. God has treated me better than I deserve. Because I deserve nothing but his wrath. And God has treated us better than we deserve. You see, he owes mercy to no one. But thank God that he has not treated us as we deserve. He is the God of mercy, the God of love, and the God of grace. And because of his grace, and out of his sovereign choice and will, he chooses those to whom he will grant mercy and salvation in Christ. It is his right to do so. And this is the point that Paul was making in Romans chapter 9, the passage that we read. And I won't go into that passage this morning. You can have a look at that. For Paul says... Can the potter say, can, can the clay t- say to the potter, why have you made me this way? Can it? No. The clay is in the hand of the potter. And the potter can do with it what he wants to do with the clay. And God says in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy. Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9, Malachi chapters 1, 
and if he, uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 33, I will have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy. Can man question God? The fact is that election is not based on some foreseen action of someone down the track. Friends, no. Election and predestination is based on God's sovereign choice and his predestination of grace. It is his call to make. And so Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Election and predestination therefore is un. Conditional. It is a mystery. It is solely the work of God. To make ourselves the source of our salvation belittles the grace and the glory of God in the cross. He has made the choice to give to whom he chooses to give the gift of salvation before the foundation of the world. It is an unconditional gift of God. Calvin, let me quote him again. The name of Christ excludes all merit. And everything which men have of their own. For when, we, when he says that we are chosen in Christ, it follows that in ourselves we are unworthy. May we never think that it was anything good in us that motivated the Father to choose us for salvation. For we in ourselves are undeserving of his favor. His choice is wholly or totally of grace based on his own good pleasure. And so we should be Thankful always. So brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, election and predestination is not meant for endless arguments. For us as Christians, it is more than that. It is for Christians. It is for believers. It is meant to bring comfort to believers. It is meant to bring hope for believers. It is meant to bless the hearts of believers. Last week I picked up this book. Uh, one of my elders uh, recommended this book. He said, I'm reading this book at the moment. It's called Proof with the subtitle Finding Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. I've started to read it, but I did flick to one uh, chapter that was dealing with predestination. And in the book, the following question is raised. What's the point of predestination? What's the point of predestination? Well, the authors outline three things. Predestination, election, connection together provides for the people of God. One, comfort in trials. If God is capable of choosing zombie rebels and turning them into beloved children, there is no hardship in all creation that he won't be able to work together for the good of those who love him. It's comfort. You know, friends, Life has many trials, right? We go through the ups and through the downs. Cancers, diseases, operations, loneliness, death, loved ones are taken away. The doctrine tells us that there is comfort in trials here because God has laid his hand upon you as his child. No matter what happens, we hold to the God of all comfort. Paul speaks of that in the book of Corinthians. The God, may the God of all comfort comfort our hearts, he says. Do you need comfort this morning? Are you going through a battle? Are you going through a trial? 
Are you going through a low moment in your life as a young person, as a, as a married person, as a senior member of this congregation? Are you going through a trial that is beyond what you can cope with? And it's too much to bear. The weight is crushing you down. You're looking for work, perhaps. You can't find work. Your family is going through a trial. Predestination says, election is a comfort to believers. Knowing that our God stands. That this God, who has laid his hand on you and has called you in his good grace and elected you into his family, says, I will comfort you. That's grace, isn't it? Isn't that grace? The second thing it says is also motivation for praise. You see, because praise was part of God's purpose in predestinating us and electing us uh, as a particular people for salvation, it's a motivation for praise. So this morning, instead of getting into the arguments, am I elect or am I not? Why has God done this or why has he not done that? Rejoice in the salvation that is yours and mine in Christ. All right? That's what we must be doing. We must say to God, Lord, I don't know why you have in your grace before the foundations of this world, which is a mystery beyond my understanding and comprehension. I don't know why, but I just want to say, Lord, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you that you have made me a child of you. And before the foundations of the world, you have called me to be your child. They're marvelous. You see, that's what we see here. And it's also an encouragement for evangelism. You see, there are those who take a hyper view of, uh, of this thing and say, well, if God has chosen to elect people, then why do we do evangelism? Why do we go on the streets in Box Hill and talk to people? We might as well cancel all of that. No. It's a motivation for evangelism. Because it's an encouragement for evangelism. Because it helps us to go and share the gospel. So that those who are not his will hear the gospel and respond to that gospel. Friends, he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. So that we'll be holy and blameless before him. Be holy and blameless. Now I said we're going to look at uh, the next verse. But we're not going to do that this morning. Because we've covered a substantial amount already. Right? We'll look at the adoption next week. Can you see why I'm saying sometimes we could take one verse and talk on the whole topic here this morning? But I'm not going to do that to you this morning. You see, God has called. He has made that choice. So that we will be holy and blameless. Let me finish verse 4. I believe that there are two aspects to the words to be holy and blameless. This dual description tells us that the blessings we have in Christ as well as the responsibilities we have in him as his chosen people. For a moment, think about it friends. On the one hand, to be holy and blameless is tremendously liberating. Why? Think about it for a moment. Our blame has been removed. Our guilt and shame has been taken away. There are many things in our lives that we might be ashamed of. Yes or no? Don't answer, okay? I mean, mean, there are things that I'm ashamed of in my life. There are things that you might be ashamed of. There are things that you've done and say, man, how could that have happened? And you know those things, right? 
But you know what Christ does? The liberating thing of the gospel is this. That you have been made holy and blameless. The Greek word there, the translation, is to be without blemish. That is, that because Christ has died and taken your sin, you stand before God, how? In your own good works? And say, oh, how good I am, God. You must have mercy on me because I am so good. No. God has taken your sin and mine. All my shame. It's like a blackboard. Uh, people don't use blackboards now, is it? It's a whiteboard. <laughs> it's a whiteboard. You take the markers and you write it. And then you take the eraser and... You mark it all and you wipe the slate clean. I remember when I was growing up in Sri Lanka, having a slate. Anyone use slates in your life with a little... Come on, I see a few hands, okay. I used to take the slate to school with a little thing around it and write your mats and all of that and then wipe the thing, right? Those days are gone. They're gone. We lived in a different age. (laughs) It's gone wiping the slate clean. Takes all your shame, all your guilt, and he makes you blameless in his sight. What a blessing is that. Friends, I don't know what you're going through in your life this morning. What sins you feel so ashamed of. If you're a Christian in Christ, God has wiped the slate clean. And he's given you a new standing. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that? Next time, we'll look at the goal of predestination. Which is our adoption in Christ. So today, to sum up very quickly. Please note. That God has called us. He has blessed us in Christ. He has chosen us before the foundations of this world. In the mystery and marvel of his grace. We are blessed in Christ. We are chosen in him. We are predestined in Christ. We are blessed in the beloved. We are children of God in Christ. Everything is in Christ alone. That's the blessing Uh, That we have and enjoy always as his people. Let me stop. Let me pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you Lord for your electing love and your predestination upon our lives. Lord we do know that this is complex. It's a mystery. But it's wonderfully comforting for us believers. To know that somehow in your grace and in your mercy, before the foundations of this world that you set your gift of salvation to each and every one of us as individuals and to your people across the world throughout the ages past. Help us to take comfort to know that we are yours. From eternity onwards. Help us Lord this morning. If there is anyone here. Who has not responded. To the gospel of Jesus Christ. To know that God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him. Should not perish. But have everlasting life. Lord if there is anyone here. Who has not responded to the call of Christ. May today be. The beginning of a new journey where we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility somehow meeting together to bring the gift of salvation. In Jesus' name.
Amén.